0: Welcome to episode 34 of the I'm book podcast I'm April O'Leary your host and today we have author Andrew G Pierce here talking about his book, resolving spiritual skepticism and recovery, and his journey from relapse back into sobriety and how he was able to find a version of spirituality that works for him. Let's get started.
1: Welcome to the I'm Book Podcast. I'm April O'Leary, and I'm so excited. I've got Andrew Pierce here with me today, who is the new author of Resolving Spiritual Skepticism in Recovery, Putting the Universe to Work for You. And he is an author that you absolutely need to hear from and follow. So perk up your ears for this episode. Andrew, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, April. Thanks for having me.
1: You're welcome. And I see a brief smile for a second there. I almost caught it. So Andrew has a therapy practice here in Southwest Florida. He works with people in addiction recovery. He's also in recovery himself. And that's what we're gonna talk about today because when someone puts together a book called Resolving Spiritual Skepticism in Recovery, you have to ask yourself, how did they come up with this idea? And that's one thing that as a publisher, I'm always fascinated by is how someone who comes to us with a book or with an idea came to the conclusion that they needed to write the book. And so, Andrew, um, let's talk about that today. Let's talk about you and your own path to recovery. And this is something that, you know, I've been in therapy before. I'm also in recovery. And sometimes when I'm sitting in the chair in a therapy office, you don't hear a lot Of the backstory of your therapist, so we're going to get a peek behind the curtain. Are you okay with that?
2: Yeah, no, I'm. I'm all over that. That's fine because I'm just like everybody else that comes through my office. I specialize in addiction therapy, and so my story makes it easier to relate with my clients. You know, so
1: that's great. So tell me a little bit of your trajectory in um, active addiction and where it took you. Which you share a little bit in the book, but you can give the the listeners here a peek behind that um, story if you wouldn't mind.
2: Sure. Um, You know, when I look back, um, if I didn't have the understanding that I do now about how people, uh, I guess, how addiction works, and before they pick up that first drink or smoke that first joint, I would never, have imagined that anything unusual was going on, except that I liked uh, smoking. I think I started drinking and smoking when I was 13. Um, My folks were uh, upstanding, you know, pillars of the community. My dad in a small town in central Wisconsin. uh, uh, My dad was an attorney. Uh, My mom was uh, sort of the community liaison to, uh, you know, engage socially with everybody and uh, make sure that <clears throat> people knew who he was and uh you know it seems like a, a pretty good pretty good deal looking back I think you know they were he was pretty busy and so and i had ADD as a kid and so one of the things that my folks always used to uh, say was that uh that I'm sure their parents told them that, and this was back in the day, but uh, they said, well, children are to be seen and not heard, right, because mm. they didn't want people, you know, they wanted, they wanted their peace and quiet. And so, of course, a kid with ADD is, falls outside the realm of that spectrum, and so you can imagine that anybody with ADD, and I talk about this in the book, because there's a strong correlation between ADD and addiction, um, you know is going to get some pretty negative feedback along the way and so if your folks are kind of uh, tend to be perfectionist or judgmental uh, that kind of set the stage i think so that when i got to be 13 and had that first drink or that first hit of pot it was a tremendous relief compared to whatever my normal background level of stress was which was just normal to me so mm-hmm. i think you know that type of stuff sets the stage for a lot of people there there's uh, always a tremendous sense of relief. Um, I was adopted. I think that might, you know, there's a, with with the addiction, there's always sort of a fear of abandonment thing. I was adopted as an infant. And so that uh, can play a role, I think, in, in in the psychology. There are actually groups out there for people that are adopted and there's a lot of codependency among people that that are adopted because, even though their parents may have been loving and given them a, a good shot at life, um, you know, there's always this fundamental truth in their mind that uh, their own mom didn't even want them, you know. And so I, I think that that can play a role and in, in, uh, maybe played a role for me. I, my folks were great, like I said, I mean, and I uh, actually met my biological mom. She tracked me down when I was 18 when I was watching a Packer game at college <laughs> and uh wow. kind of surprised me but I, I ultimately came to the conclusion that she probably did the right thing by giving me up considering her circumstances at the time
0: hmm. um, so but yeah so, so you know
2: age 13 through 17 that's when i, I did my parting in, in college and uh my grades reflected it my behavior reflected it um and uh had, got into some legal trouble at age 17 and quit uh I went to a treatment. They gave me a choice between going to treatment or prison for three and a half years, and I thought about it for about a half a second. <laughs> and thought, well, maybe I'll go to uh, go to treatment. So, that's- so
1: here you are, a seventeen-year-old in treatment, mm-hmm. and you know it's interesting because um, you know for anyone in addiction recovery who's been around a twelve-step program, let's say for example, and has listened to speaker meetings or things. Addicts come from all different types of family backgrounds, from extremely dysfunctional drug addict families to great families with, you know, no addiction in their families. So there's not any one particular formula that produces an alcoholic, but in your case, you know, having adoption as part of the that sort of recipe of fear of abandonment and then the perfectionism and the ADD, all of that was sort of created the perfect storm for you that exploded at 17 so now at 17 here you are in rehab and how did that go for you then
2: well um i went through i was court the court told me i had to go and then follow any recommendations and so i went through a 30-day residential uh stand up in uh, minnesota at uh, the what i call the mothership at uh, hazelden uh at the time it was called hazelden <clears throat> But I actually, uh, you know, again, having terrible insight uh, into my own, the depth of my own problems, I got kicked out of that treatment center for uh, conspiring to with a guy from Texas to start bringing bales of pot across the border uh, when I when I got out. And so they kicked me out and they were going to send me to jail. And they sent so they ended up sending me to another place across town. Thankfully, I guess they found a bed at uh, Um, uh, Fairview Deaconess Treatment Center up in Minneapolis where I went for 30 days and they had an interesting thing which kind of the idea with addiction really is ultimately to convert the uh, motivation from external in other words you're kind of here because you have to be because you don't want to lose something like your freedom or your spouse or all your money um, into uh, internal motivation and there's a lot of shame in addiction and I remember the uh, little exercise that kind of turned me around was, was we were sitting a little group of people and i had to write down all the aspects of my life you know uh, school family friends things like that and then i had to rip it up and throw it into the middle of this circle of uh, i guess you could say friends other treatment goers that were my age and I had to look, in, look at each one in the eye and ask them if they would help me pick up my life, which was interesting because <clears throat> what it exposed ultimately was the amount of shame and unworthiness that comes, you know, that a person has when they go through addiction of any length. And that was really hard to do. And so it was quite an aha moment when each of them one by one said yes, and then they helped me pick up the pieces and put it back together. So, you know, that was a real, uh, when I realized, I guess, that I didn't have, that I had some, that people thought I was okay, I guess, maybe that was a turning point for me. And I stayed sober for 13 years after that.
1: So now 13 years, is a long time to stay sober. Mm -hmm. One day at a time, I I heard early on in my own sobriety, Mm -hmm. that uh, somebody heard, they heard a speaker meeting where someone said, um, they got 30, um, 30 years of sobriety and they said they couldn't believe that it was, you know, like, but every single day for 30 years, you know, like there had to be some breaks in between, uh, cause when you're new and you're trying to get 30 days, I mean, that mm-hmm. even seems like a long time, much less a year or five years, 13 years or whatever. So here's Andrew at your 13 and sobriety. So at that point you were what? 30.
2: Yeah, my my thirtieth birthday, I gave myself oh. permission to have a nice glass of wine because oh, it sounded so okay. civilized. Doesn't that sound civilized? That
1: sounds very civilized. It sounds like you should reward yourself for thirteen years of sobriety with a glass yeah, with, of wine. with
2: a drink, right?
1: So, but, how did that but, go for you? <laughs>
2: well, I, then I had an eighteen year run of of, of uh, alcohol and substance use and other things uh, that caused me to you know lose my business, my family. Uh, pretty much everything. Um, but I think it's it's worth rewinding a little bit because during that, you know, addiction is kind of like whack-a-mole, right? Um, you know, there's drugs and alcohol, sure, but there are other ways to be addicted. Um, for instance, when I quit seven years ago, um, all, my addictions, I gained 75 pounds, right? So my addictions didn't really go away, they just shifted to Culver's custard and pizza Right. So, but during that 13 year period, and this is again, quite a, quite a long time ago um, that I was sober. I remember, yes, I was sober, but during that time, my girl, I was living in LA doing the big hair rock and roll thing, playing on the Sunset Strip. And my girlfriend uh, at the time got pregnant. And so uh, I've, I've decided to do the right thing. And go to college and dropped that career um and and my dad said oh when you're getting married (laughs) and so so i did you know but that's again that ties into that people pleasing type of stuff that we have uh, that that comes with low self-esteem the byproduct always being resentment of course um but what what happened was uh because that was my addiction, I think, I think I probably had about twenty-five affairs during that uh, thirteen years on the the gal that I married my my ex, uh, because I developed a relationship addiction. You know, codependency um, is sort of an intrigue type of addiction, so it really never went away. But I didn't have the understanding about how addiction migrates from one thing to the next. And um, I just thought I was a sociopath, that I was an evil person, that I didn't care. Um, But in in retrospect, it was all motivated by the very same addictive things that um, motivate people with substance issues.
1: You know, it's so interesting too, to understand addiction from a sober perspective and to be able to look backwards and put some pieces together that when you're in it, you don't really see, um, can't see, can't understand and a lot of shame that sort of revolves around those behaviors because there's no understanding. Mm -hmm. And then when you come through it and now you have this understanding like, oh, I wasn't just a sociopath or a bad person. I was just, as you said, playing whack-a-mole. And so I whacked this addiction and then this relationship addiction popped up or I whacked that and then the food addiction popped up. And so we're constantly trying to smash down and get all the things down at the same time Mm -hmm. But some of that, which tying in with your book, relies on some sort of connection with a higher power. And -hmm. that's why in the 12-step world, if you, you know, as a listener, have ever embarked on a recovery journey of your own, or you have a friend or a family member who's gone into any sort of a 12-step recovery, there's a large component of that that has this language around a higher power of your understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't term it in the sense of this is the one god you have to believe in or the one religious text we follow or convert and be this it gives a wide path Mm -hmm. but even still a lot of people have trouble with that wording and that sort of anchor that we need as um, a way to combat this whack-a-mole process and so now after your 18-year run Mm -hmm. Um, in which you experienced a lot of consequences and Mm -hmm. found out that sobriety was probably the better choice for you. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you finally come, number one, come back into recovery? What was that moment of clarity for you? And then secondly, what was sort of the struggle of this higher power concept?
2: Okay. Well, let me answer the second question first because I think that's easier. you know, in during the time that I was um, sober, and even into the time—I think in the '90s it must have been—there was a, a movement. I figured I—I I, I felt again going back that my behavior was atrocious. I couldn't guarantee my behavior. Basically, it was the bottom line, mm-hmm. um, and so that's a terrible place to be. And so this, that was right about the time this promise keepers movement came around. In the ah, 90s. I
1: remember promise keepers. Yeah.
2: yeah. It was sort of a men's movement. And yeah. it was, it was kind of neat actually, um, you know, because it was about men being accountable for their behaviors and so on. I, I suspect that most of them didn't probably have addictions, probably the same percentage that did, but what was frustrating for me is I'd sit around and these guys would talk about how they overcame their behavioral issues, uh, you know, could could be relating to like women or or what have you, and uh, it just increased my shame. And and so um, I remember uh, going to one of those stadium things and um, and and the Million Man March, right? And, and 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 you know, sort of committing myself to the conventional higher Western higher power of Christian God, and figured, okay, that'll fix it. And even though I didn't know what it was, I just thought it was a bad person. Um, and uh, well, it didn't. And so I think that's where I, I started developing a sense of hopelessness and, uh, and, and uh, contempt, right? And then I started getting rather mocking, I think, about that whole, um, pretty much any organized religion. And there's plenty of people that you can latch on to that will criticize you know, religion and spirituality and that's fine. And I certainly did because it suited my purposes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I, I couldn't change my behavior, which was leading up to, you asked about the, uh, you know, how did I get sober this time and, and kind of get this figured out. Um, I, about seven years ago, I had uh, been, you know, I'd, I'd gone, I've jumped in with both feet over the last 18 years um, during during which time then I lost my family, uh, my business. I had a corporate retirement plan consulting firm with millions of dollars under management. And I was shaken and bacon, but I was on the road a lot. And I, I this was during the time that I'd started drinking. So I had time on my hands, money in my pocket. And eventually it just, as a pie chart, drinking and took over more and more and more of my life. Um, I was still, uh, you know, when I was on the road I was having a good time in a lot of different ways and eventually uh, I get went through a divorce in 04 my daughter at, at that time you know I, I let a uh, let one of the affairs out of the bag because I was running out of money I could see that there was a tra- the train that I was on but I still again didn't understand anything except that I was uh, not a good person um, so I I cut I let let one of the affairs public so that my wife would have an easy way to say well yeah he's just an ass and she wouldn't have to go into any great detail. Um, well my daughter didn't take that well she was 15 and my son is uh, three years younger and so she hasn't spoken to me since then so it's been about 16 years my daughter hasn't. So it it had a I you know I felt like I was doing something benevolent right by get, leaving them a life raft. You know, the which was pretty substantial. Get him through college, the house, and I just was homeless for a little while. Still drinking. Moved out to L.A. Um, by the end, I was drinking two bottles of rum a day, doing tons of coke, and had a pot card, living the living the rock star life, kind of. I I had a regular job. I was, but it didn't pay very much. I got I had gotten remarried, believe it or not. Um, yeah, I know. and uh, anyway on my wife's uh, birthday uh, the wheels fell off because I'd been dating somebody else and I think I added Xanax to the mix of my normal thing and my wife was always working she worked at at the studios and so um, she didn't really notice and I had lots of time on my hands after work and I made good use of it Um, eventually I came home one night and uh, on on her birthday and kind of let the cat out of the bag and the next morning, I got a call that said, you know, if you're, uh, we've got to place it, but it's in the book. It's a little more colorful than that. But, but, but long story short, I ended up in Betty Ford uh, Center out in the desert. And um, again, I was externally motivated because uh, my folks had some money and I didn't want to be cut out of the will. And of course, the best way to kill somebody with a healthy addiction is to give them a bunch of money when you die. So... My goal was to get sober, convince them that I'm okay, and then wait for them to die and get some money and go back to my old ways. But my therapist, who is a smart guy, Mike Potter, um, after a couple of weeks, and I started developing the understanding that I could stop you know, using and, and drinking, and the technology had come a lot further, too, as far as understanding behavioral addictions and stuff like that. Um, he said, "You know, uh, Andrew, what what could you accomplish if you if you th- knew you could get out of your own way?" You know? And uh, I thought that was a fascinating question because I started to believe that I could do stuff and that I could guarantee my behavior. And that's when I became internally motivated to say, "Well, I, I'm, I'm only 48. I got a few years left. Maybe let's see what let's see what I can do." And that was the moment where things clicked. Mm-hmm. how
1: far, and that was when you were in Buddy Ford? Yeah. And so, you know, here's the interesting thing is that, you know, here goes somebody who's been on an 18 year run Mm -hmm. and has this almost, like you said, things clicked. Mm -hmm. And now here's what I think is interesting is that to me, the click is a gift from the higher power. It's the thing that we can't achieve on our own. You know, why is it that in that very moment you had that shift in consciousness, mm-hmm. but then if we don't acknowledge it as such, you know, we can become skeptic yeah. and we can, we can remain in our skepticism and think that, you know, it's my, my, as long as I force my will and mm-hmm. I set my goals and I'm, I am the master of my own ship, you mm-hmm. know, I think that can also become a, a, an addiction to our own you know, abilities to accomplish anything and, and cut God out of the mix. And so I think it's the
2: opposite actually, because when we finally decide what we truly want, I think what we're doing is we're acting in a manner that is aligned with what our higher power wants. People always say, well, you know, it's scary to turn my will and my life over to the care of a higher power, but my perspective is, is that if we figure out, and this is what we do in therapy, because most people frankly have forgotten what they truly want. And if you don't even know who you are anymore because you've been a people pleaser for so long. And I remember um, once saying that when I die, every, everyone else's life's gonna flash before my eyes. <laughs> because I, I literally made all of my major decisions through life in order to maintain attachment with people in a codependent way out of fear of, of abandonment. Mm-hmm. um and so my skepticism though came from there are a lot of valid reasons why i became skeptical the promise keepers thing didn't help much because if there was a god then it would have changed my behaviors um if uh, i was worthy of that right and when that didn't happen then it just made me feel worse because clearly i wasn't worthy of uh, you know being fixed mm-hmm. in retrospect the way that i frame that of course is that i had to learn some difficult lessons um about about the depths of of addiction so that I would get internal motivation to make a change because nobody can really impose that kind of motivation externally without either destroying the relationship or creating a huge amount of resentment. Um, But so I I, I got sober and I I would go to meetings and I would look at the promises and I would uh, see there would be people at meetings that would um, talk about their higher power and they always seem to have a better depth of recovery than mm. I had because I was cynical and skeptical and I didn't really make fun of them because I understand that people's belief system uh, serve a purpose. But what happened was uh, in the course of doing my practice here and when I first started, I, I had ran an intensive outpatient program and I was watching a documentary called Finding Joe which was interesting uh, uh, um, it's a, about basically um, it was an eastern philosophy it presented an eastern philosophy of spirituality which kind of i was able to grasp onto that and a lot of the principles of it were aligned with recovery concepts the idea that your higher power can and do for you what you can't do yourself do what we don't do for ourselves and that seemed fascinating to me because it also I like that because I could uh, people that were well versed in that seemed to be able to uh, develop a sense of spirituality and my desire I guess for that depth of recovery because I knew that I wouldn't probably be able to have a great quality of recovery, unless I developed some form of a spirituality that I could live with and buy into, um, it, it, it just wasn't the same. And so I went about this quest of, of trying to find a way to into spirituality that wouldn't, uh, it would be easy for some an egomaniac uh, with, with this much self-esteem Uh, to uh, accept and embrace. And I tried experientially some of the practices, some of the meditative stuff to develop a sense of uh, that I'm not my thoughts, right? That I'm separate from my thoughts, which leads to, to sort of the conclusion that maybe there is some sort of like our consciousness is like the ghost in the machine, if you will, that we're just a bunch of atoms, but there's something that animates us that makes you, you, that makes me, me. And intuitively it made sense. And then I started looking into some of the science behind that stuff. And it's like, oh yeah, I could see how this is possible. And I put together a, basically a the puzzle of how that would work plausibly with hard science, which I don't have to have a lot of faith in hard science because there it is, it's proven stuff. And it made the gap, it made it that much easier to grasp a sense of uh, spirituality and and into my life from that leap from the very farthest edges of human understanding of how the world works how reality works it isn't that much of a leap anymore to um, come to the conclusion that there's there's some sort of higher power divine intelligence behind this it doesn't matter which one it is. That's one of the beauties, I guess, of the book and the, the clinical model that I came up with is that you can insert any God here, right? You know, Christian yeah. God, uh, all of the universe, you name it. <clears throat> and this uh, clinical model basically just would go about explaining how God works, how higher power works, how spirituality works, human connection, um, authenticity, and how important it is, and that we can leverage the universe, the, the, the nature of reality to ha- have God or our higher power um, do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And yeah. when I started doing that, it got a little spooky because all sorts of good things happen. It's kind of weird. weird. It's like
1: finding the, you know, they talk about the golden key, but it's finding that sense of a uh, higher power that unlocks all these amazing gifts like you Mm -hmm. said that will do for us what we can't do for ourselves so I know Mm -hmm. we've sort of gone around the block here and to kind of tie things together Mm -hmm. um, back on a personal level um, how would you say that you know your quest for spiritual understanding through you know quantum theory and all you know all of the things you present in the book which Mm -hmm. you know if you have um, any interest in spirituality and recovery and you're listening to this right now. this book is a must read. I'll tell you because not only has Andrew put so much um, research and dedication into the book, but there is a whole arsenal of videos and complementary digital materials that he's provided to help you understand spirituality in a way you may have never thought about it before. And so we all kind of come to the table in life with maybe, the brand of spirituality that our parents raised us with, or we had sort of that promise keepers experience that left us disappointed, or, you know, we had in some way, this spiritual bubble was burst. um, And then we have to reinvent that. And so now that you're seven years into recovery, you know, you've written this book, you work with people in addiction recovery, how would you say that spirituality for you has really improved your quality of recovery personally?
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that the uh, first of all, the, the reason I started the book was because I could see that there was a clinical value, frankly, in adopting a spiritual perspective. But for those of us who are tend to be skeptical or cynical about it or atheistic or what have you, that's fine. But I knew that with my clients seeing them um, struggle with in the absence of any sort of cl- uh, spiritual beliefs, um, it would make a lot more sense if I could adopt those. And what, what the value that it has, the things, the, I guess the clinical value that has helped with me with relapse prevention in adopting a spiritual perspective is um, if you think about the fact that addiction is ultimately a stress reaction, right? It's, it's, it's not the core problem. The, the question isn't why the addiction, it's why the pain that we're experiencing. And or or the uh, uncomfortable emotions. A lot of people are worried about uncertainty about uh, the future. They get anxiety about that because they come from backgrounds where um, uncertainty was never worked out well. Let's put it that way. Um, the uh, but the uh, the sense that w- when I engage in the process of I guess capitalizing on what I called my dual citizenship between environment, you know, here, you and I talking and make, you know, I got to pay the bills, do this, that, and the other thing, that's our, 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 uh, you know, material world. And then there's this, this, our consciousness, our spiritual world, uh, which within our consciousness, we have access to a, it's like a sanctuary almost, right? And so as somebody who's a prone, to, who would be vulnerable to the desire to self-medicate if things get too stressful. It's nice to have that sanctuary to go to, emotional, mental sanctuary that I can go to if I want to, and to be able to cons- consult with that. It's also gives me a sense that once I've um, decided who I am and what I truly want, which I call the... Uh, um, Authentication process. You know, I'm no longer a moving target as far as being a chameleon—one person for here, one person for there, for the, for this situation. I'm just one person. I'm me, and people. It makes me a safer person to love, right? Because I'm not. You know, I'm not. I am who I am. I'm not anybody else. And for social, so many people in addiction with shame, we try to present multiple images to maintain attachment with people, and because we're afraid. That if we're just our just ourselves, right, that will be rejected, which will simply reaffirm what we unconsciously believe to be true about ourselves, which is that we're not worthy of love. Mm. And like like Mark Twain said, it's better to be quiet and thought a fool than to open our mouth and be proven one, right? Mm. And so the assumption is the it's the same thing with shame. It's better to we always think it's better to hide, and and uh, be thought unlovable than to actually assert our authenticity and have that proven to us. Mm -hmm. And so if we have this sense that a higher power can bring to the table that we are lovable, right, that we're part of that whole realm, that gives us the, uh, gives me a lot more courage to be authentic in this world and have experiences that actually disconfirm those preconceptions. You know, mm-hmm. when, when I get a, a text or somebody that someone's looking at my book, right? I mean, in a, in a sense, this book is like an autobiography. This is me, right? Mm-hmm. This is everything I know, you know, to up, to, up into that date. And um, so when somebody buys it in Australia that I've never met, um, or um, I get, you know, reviews online, I mean, I take it very personally in a positive sense, but I also am smart enough now to know that I don't have to hit if somebody has something critical to say, which I haven't heard yet. But they're they're probably just not talking about it. Um, but that I'm not going to take that personally. So, so the the skill that we that we have a choice as to uh, what um, you know to, whether to believe things, attach my emotional wagon to thoughts and experiences that are are un, not affirming. Um, you know, that was a revelation to me that um, came as part of a spiritual awakening, that I don't have to own every negative perceived slight or criticism. So, and then finally, the idea that uh, everything is as it should be, you know, I I used to think that, you know, circumstances that were distressful were, uh, you know, I would, oh, this is the end of the world, I would catastrophize what was going to happen. But then when I look back in, in the book, I talk about this at every so-called awful experience at the time, you know, number one, three to six months later, it, I'm all, I've am i never not said it was the best thing that ever happened, right? And so it's, again, it's the universe doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's, it's not maybe like a positive thing, like, oh, look, there's a new car out front. But it's also detaching us from situations that maybe because of my pathology and fear of abandonment or lack of self-confidence shame low self-esteem all those things that come with addiction that's the universe removing us from situations and I've always I've never not been put into a better situation where had I not gone through that negative experience um, you know I was not put as long as I'm breathing I, I always end up in a better spot mm-hmm. same thing with all of my clients and that's valuable because um, from a clinical perspective now when I look at If I'm going through a hard time in real life, in real time, why do I want to get upset now and then wait three months to feel like it was the best thing that ever happened? I can know it right now. It's the best thing that's ever happening to me. I just don't know what the outcome is.
1: Right. I love having
2: that, that faith, if you will, that after experience, after experience, after experience, that's how I build faith in my conception of a higher power.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. And, you know, it's a great way to sort of tie this up is that, you know, when you have this connection to higher power and you know that for, based on past experiences and things happening that, you know, saying God is doing for you what you cannot do for yourself, that in the midst of what would have normally caused the stress response, which would have made us turn to our addiction of choice. Now, when we get into that stress response space we can remove ourselves. And one thing that I like to think about is having an element of curiosity, like this is interesting. I wonder how this is gonna turn out because I can't quite figure out how this is gonna be good, but I'm sure it will in the long run, but I don't have to get my undies in a bunch today because I know that there's a reason why there are no accidents. And so that I believe is what brings forth what you're presenting in the book, this higher quality of sobriety because we don't have to run back to our addictions and our um, you know, stress responses of the past because we have the sanctuary to go to, as you're saying, um, based on not just woo-woo, think of you know, whatever conception. Act of as
2: it. if, right? You know?
1: Yeah, it's that there, there yeah. are some concrete evidence, which Andrew presents in the book, that make spirituality and the concept of a higher power, and I loved your phrase, I'm going to steal it right now, a foregone conclusion. I've heard you say that many times. Mm-hmm. So spirituality doesn't have to be this act as if pretend, you know, it can be something that is a concrete working part of your consciousness. And so this book is revolutionary. Um, I can say that as someone in recovery, but also as a publisher who works with a lot of different authors um, resolving spiritual skepticism and recovery, I think should be on everyone's shelf. Um, even if they're not in recovery, can help you really improve your own conscious connection to the universe, put the universe to work for you. And the fact that you, Andrew, were able to really um, be a vehicle for the universe to bring this message through, you know, and put it together is something that I'm just grateful that we had the chance to work with you on it. So thank you for being one of our authors here. We value you. It's a
2: privilege. And, uh, you know, that was another right another uh, sort of an aha moment right when we ended Design up together,
1: that is the truth um you know the the universe puts us where we need to be and with the people we need to be on the journey with so thank you to those of you who joined us today on the podcast we appreciate you being here um go to andrew's website where's the best way for them to get an autographed copy
2: um if they go to andrewgpierce.com andrewgpierce.com um You can follow the links to projects and uh, that'll take you to the books and you can order one and we're fulfilling those requests all the time. It's great.
1: It's great. And Andrew will sign it for you. And on the website is also where you can opt in and get all those digital resources. I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Um, as you go through this book, you'll see various icons that are going to direct you to that digital toolkit. That's going to really make this book interactive for you. So thank you, Andrew, for your time today. Thank you for the gift that you have brought into the world. We so appreciate it. And this link to the book and to our website, o'learypublishing.com are going to be in the show notes. So we hope that you will engage there. And we look forward to seeing you on our next podcast. Have a great day, all of you. Thank you. Bye now.
0: And that was episode 34. Thank you to Andrew G. Pierce for taking his time to be on our podcast today. To get his book, please visit andrewgpierce.com where you can get an autographed copy and download all the digital resources that were mentioned in this podcast. And if you are looking to get information about becoming a published author, download our free publishing guide, The Influencer's Path to Successful Publishing at our website, o'learypublishing.com. Thanks again and have an amazing day.